This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome to Energy Sense, a uh, new podcast from IHS Market. I'm Hill Vaden here with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Brian Darty. Hi, Brian. Hi, Hill. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, so, yeah, today we mentioned this is uh, our first our first episode of Energy Sense. Um, and Brian and I are going to be on, on this show con- considering the, the biggest trends and trend makers in global energy markets uh, via conversations with experts uh, across our firm. Yeah, it's actually particularly exciting for us because we can talk all forms of energy on this particular podcast, which is great, which means we can discuss oil, gas, power, renewables, the intersections between them. And uh, the other great thing is we're hoping to focus the show's conversation in particular on the connections between global energy and the financial sectors and, and give some interesting new perspectives on on how those two sectors intertwine. Yeah, the uh, those two sectors have been uh, closely intertwined uh, over these past few weeks on the back of COVID and uh, negative oil prices and everything else. So, so today we've got with us Kareem Fawaz, an oil uh, an oil expert, uh, one of our uh, global oil experts, as well as uh, Reed Olmsted, who's uh, an expert in both North America oil and gas supply. Welcome, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you, guys. And just on the back of what you mentioned there, Hill, uh, I don't think there's anybody that would deny that it's been an exciting, um, terrifying, I don't know what other adjectives are appropriate to use here, last couple of months um, in the general world, let alone financial markets and energy markets. So how about we we start on that very broad subject? And we have Kareem here, actually, who's been... spearheading a lot of discussion internally and externally over the last few days on sort of this rapid rally that we've had at the front of the curve in particular in oil prices since just early April, where, of course, we saw the negative pricing, which was always a very um, popular topic for a few days, but teen-type pricing, and then now all of a sudden to be above that $30 in the $30 to $35 range on WTI, that's a drastic change in a relatively short amount of time. And uh, maybe he can give us a little bit more perspective on on what he thinks is actually driving that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, as you as you mentioned, I think the the velocity of the price moves we've been seeing is kind of pretty astounding when you think about it. Obviously, we were negative in on on April 20th, 21st. We're now trading in the mid 30s for WTI. We've had a relatively smooth rally over the past four weeks across kind of the both Brent and WTI prices. So you're starting to move away from that, you know, fear of catastrophe mode where we, which we were in in March and April now towards that kind of, I would say, cautious and potentially slightly less cautious optimism about the recovery as you go into uh, the second half of this year. 
countries are starting to reopen, sanction, kind of uh, movement restrictions are starting to be lifted around the world, and shut-ins are happening on the supply side around the world. So uh, that kind of narrative is forming, and prices are kind of getting taken along for the ride. And I think the key thing that's been happening over the past month that's been interesting is just how fast this has all happened in a crisis that's, I mean, arguably, but probably quite you know, visibly one of the D- deepest demand crises in, in the market in the, in the history of the oil market. So you said yesterday in a, in a note that you released to clients that I think the, the the top headline on it was if it feels too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah, um, I mean, what we tried to what we tried to kind of talk through in the note yesterday was uh, prices rallying in itself from where we were at the end of April is not necessarily out of the ordinary, even given the market conditions. So WTI was trading in late April at around 12 to $15 a barrel. Forget the negative price breach, but over the next, the few start, the few first days of the June 2020 contract. So from that level, it made sense as the system as a whole, especially the US oil system started to rebalance and we stopped building stocks, crude stocks uh, at, the, at the rate we were building. We were building around 20 to 30 million barrels a week. We're now flat to declining on a weekly basis in, in crude inventories. So as you that's the physical system started to rebalance, it doesn't, it's not surprising that the forward curve started to flatten and that super contango that you needed to incentivize storage started to fade. The problem is that accounts for two thirds of the rally, I would say, is the last third that's starting to get us a bit worried about overheating. And the reason is, as you move into that mid $30 a barrel range, the forces that caused that rally, which was the tightening of supply around the world, will start to come under threat as prices start to move higher and closer to you know normal levels, so to speak. And some so- of the... The enthusiasm or, you know, the, the rapid climb back. I mean, is any of that just traffic? I mean, I'm looking around Houston right now and see traffic jams, right? And it feels like people are driving again. Is is there something, I'm sure there's more to the equation than that. No, I think the demand narrative is quite important. The problem is with demand is very opaque in general. So it hasn't, there's not a lot of hard data in terms of oil demand figures that confirm uh, to, to what extent global demand is recovering. We're starting to see gasoline demand in the United States recover uh, modestly, but kind of visibly on a week-to-week basis. We're seeing it through our work with our uh, with Opus, which is a, a team within IHS market that tracks gasoline sales around the U.S. on a weekly basis. So we are seeing that demand pick up, but I think in terms of the global oil market, it's hard to glean. But the narrative is, as these country, as most countries around the world are moving from kind of full shutdown to reopening, driving returns, is that the worst is over on demand. And as you kind of start that climb back and supply is still on the downward trending trajectory, the market will start to see that improvement. So that's, I think, fueling a lot of that price upside. But when we talk about supply, am I right in interpreting that there's kind of two stories going on here. There's the physical rebalancing need storyline, which would be that of Mm shut-ins. And I think that's what you're talking about when we start talking about the weakening of drivers and enforcers of this correction that did happen. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there's also the other, which is a very important structural story, which is the 
retrenchment in capex spend amongst producers particularly in north america and and what that means for structural supply declines not just in 2020 or the immediate term but actually as a longer term trend um is that is that correct is Exactly. I think that, that's that's exactly correct. And what's happened in the market is you have two speeds of response. What what the market has faced in March and April was the size of the surplus was such. If you go back a couple of months and try to put it in perspective, as we came into this this crisis, the scale of the demand drop and the scale of the oversupply in the market was such that the the risk and the fear of the lack of storage capacity in the market, both in terms of vessels at sea and tanks on land, was such that you needed a mechanism to curtail supply around the world faster than capex. So there, 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 that was the incentive for the shut-in pressure that we've seen over the past couple of months, and that's played out particularly in the U.S., but also through the cuts implemented by OPEC plus and, it, and their partners, but also in Canada and Norway and in countries around the world. That's kind of the immediate supply response. There is a slower response, or relatively slower, I would say, which is through, through CapEx, and that's going to play out for an extended period of time here uh, over the next few years, which is in the U.S. in terms of CapEx, and Reed will definitely talk more through that, but also in terms of FIDs of, or sanctioning of new projects around the world that we've seen grind to a halt. So that hangover, if you want, if so to speak, in terms of global supply, is going to play out. Is going to continue playing out here as prices rally up, rally back up in the short term. The risk is that that first level of supply response that I was talking about, the reactive supply response, that starts to unwind. Okay, so that so we're talking about shut-ins maybe starting to unwind in this low 30 to to high 30 type range, but we're not yet talking about changes in the underlying narrative of a reduced capex program moving into 2021 that needs a higher price point is that right reed or or do well, we think well, that 35 dollars sounds good for producers well definitely we're seeing the most acute response being in shut-ins um you know we've seen almost weekly if not several times a week operators making shut-in announcements but it's really started to that the pace of that has really started to dwindle uh we've, we track rigs we've seen rig count relatively flat for the last couple of weeks um and so so the rig counts is due to the suffocation of capex um but then the the shut-ins are are just the acute response and, and so uh we're starting to see operators talk of you know they're till Obviously, uh, in, in North America, it's it's analog. It's not digital. It's not you know an NOC will produce or not produce. It's what is every individual operator going to do, um, and so it's a very analog, continuous uh, decision process. Uh, and so we're starting to see some operators say, "Okay, we're getting comfortable with this." Um, we've actually we've actually seen shut-ins occur faster than we were expecting. Um, very responsive. Uh, you know, the, the announcement that, that Kareem talked about of OPEC Plus uh, is having very good uh, constructive pressure on price or at least a, a significant reduction of downward pressure on price. So we are starting to see um, hope of these shut-ins coming back. Uh, they may come back stronger. They may come back weaker. That's one of the problems with shutting in unconventionals is nobody really knows what happens because we've never done this. Um so that's the acute side of it. The chronic side or the longer 
short-term implication is, look, we've got this massive global demand destruction that's going to take a while to, to heal itself. Um, I think the projections are maybe 18 to 24 months. And so when we had the U.S. growing uh, a half million barrels a day this year uh, in the first half, but then flat for 18 months, I mean, that was on stagnant uh, or very low demand growth globally. And that was our original outlook in January. Now we have this huge drop in demand. And so that's where we see the CapEx coming in longer term, having implications on pushing down supply in that manner. So you mentioned so, you know, the shut-in questions, you know, that you don't really know how quickly these will come back. And I think your team published a report, you know, this week looking at, you know, how, you know, shut-ins always don't, don't always come back to the level that, that one, you know, may have expected. Um, you know, what, you know, are, are there, is there perhaps an incentive to, to unshut in your well, uh, you know, more sooner than otherwise to, to avoid any long-term decay? Like, is there, or, or, you know, is that in the calculus of some of these management teams? So the problem with shut-ins is uh, you, have to, you have to think about the financial implication. If you really just want to take the most production off the market quickest, you're going to shut in your newest wells in unconventionals. Those are the ones that are producing the highest. But those are also the ones most susceptible to coming back at a lower production rate. Um, our study, and, and I hate speaking in averages because there are so many nuances to, to what goes, to what happens, but typically you, you stand a much reduced likelihood of destroying productivity or potential productivity if a well is three years older, three years or older. But when you think about it, those aren't the wells that are producing the most volumes. You know, you, you've gone from a thousand barrels a day or down to 75 barrels a day on three years old so you've got to shut in a whole um but again there's a whole distribution in this we're seeing what we did see is operators were very in what they did a lot of operators i just said we're shutting everything in regardless of vintage um i think some were probably more more deliberate in in how they went about it but again it's, it's still very much being felt out. Um, I've, uh, probably a lot of people listened to the SPE call the other day, and, and the theory there was, you know, older wells will hold up better because they used higher quality sand. Uh, and so when, when, the sand, when the fractures try to close up, the sand won't, won't uh, be deconstructed as, to the same level that in basin natural sand. So there are a lot of factors that we just don't know on the, on the restart. But suffice to say, operators were very responsive to price. They'll try to be equally responsive on the upside, I think, at least in bringing back shut-in production. They will not be responsive in CapEx deployment. I think that's – so this is a very different scenario, for instance, than what we would have seen in the – you know, just five years ago, roughly, in the, the previous downturn, right? I mean, people wanted to bring back production from shut-ins. That's one thing. Sorry, go ahead. So the price didn't the price didn't get as bad. In fact, I, I think it was just a couple of years ago that uh, we were all high fiving each other because price got over fifty, and now we're high fiving <laughs> each other because price is over thirty. So it, it, those twenty dollars, <laughs> the twenty dollars between thirty and fifty is a lot bigger than the twenty dollars from eighty to a hundred. Um, so we never got to this point, and the outlook was never as dire uh, as as it okay. was back then. I mean, I think right now, as Kareem would would attest. Look, it's not just bad now. The expectation is it's going, it's going to be bad, and that's the best outcome. 
you know, there's talk about a, a, a second wave of COVID. Nobody is really talking about we'll have, you know, by the fall, we'll have a vaccine. I mean, that's a hope. But but I think most people are pricing in more downside risk than upside risk to the price outlook right now. Whereas back in 2015 and 16, everybody was a bit more optimistic. So we think, it, but I think it's probably safe to say then that there's going to be a little bit more hesitancy amongst producers to jump on a price bandwagon this time around. Yeah, I, I would say that. Uh, so a couple, re- the main reason for that is they've been pummeled in the markets. These guys, these guys, their stock price not only has gone down because the value of their product has gone down, but just the the financial institutions are completely uh, uninterested in the investment. If you if you've tracked the industry on for North America for the last few years, nobody you know people talk about growth, but for the last eighteen to twenty four months, the leading line has been cash flow. Visibility to cash flow, cash flow neutrality, you know, pay down debt, stock repurchases, things like that. And that was all well and good at a $45 to $50 price. Nobody was really stress testing their portfolio at $25 or $30. And so now they're not concerned about growth. They're fully focused, one track mind on cash flow. And so if we even I think if we saw a price go to 45, most operators are going to try to capture that to prove their diligence in going cash flow positive. That's what investors want. That's what it's going to take to get their stock price up and to re to, you know, reattract investors. So I don't think that we're going to see the even if we saw a price come back, I think invest I think operators will be very, very reluctant to throw a whole bunch of money back into the system. Throw a whole bunch of money in back in the system in terms of capex, or I mean, yes. just. But if you think about the shut-in question, and and you know maybe you think about OPEC, right, where, where there's traditional cheaters, you know, kind of you know in, in a year, I'm getting no cash flow from a shut-in well. Um, it, it is you know the the best thing for me as an independent operator is to have you shut in your well, while I continue to you know fill my pipeline. Or are, are there things that you're watching outside of So as long as you're covering your variable to flow a well, to flow an existing well. Mm-hmm. What we saw back last last month is nobody could cover their variable costs. So they said, why am I selling my product at, a, at, at, at an absolute unquestionable loss? To turn it back on, they're gonna want to see they're gonna want a little more faith because there is a risk of of damaging equipment, damaging the reservoir. Um, Sometimes there is there is cost to restart. You may have to replace a pump or deal with flood uh, cleaning out water. You may you know there are lots of things that could be associated with restarting. But in the end, it's a lot cheaper to restart a two year old well than to drill a new well. And so the capital necessary to bring back shut in is is just a, a small fraction of restarting your drilling program. So it would make sense, you know, as long as you can get that cash flow turn your wells back and you feel confident, turn your wells back on, but be a little bit more uh, judicious in, in neutral. It's interesting that you mentioned this, you know, the hesitancy or the, or the potential challenges that a producer might look at when they talk about restarting the capital, a CapEx program or a growth CapEx program, I guess we'll say. And, you know, as a quick transition over onto the gas side, I would have to say, as I look at gas rates, 
gas price risk in North America over the next 18 months, I keep asking Kareem a bunch of questions about oil. So <laughs> much, much to his chagrin, I'm sure. But because um, at the end of the day, what we're asking on the gas side is we've been telling gas producers or non-associated gas producers specifically, look, hold back, hold back for the last X number of years, or we want just a little bit from you this year, a little bit from you that year. And particularly in 2020, the the narrative has been hold back everything you can because we're grossly oversupplied for this year. But now the story is also, but in 4Q, we want you to turn on a dime and then we want you to grow at a really robust rate for the for the 12 subsequent subsequent months because we have this associated gas coming out of the system because of what's happening with oil. I mean, is that is that gonna be accomplished? within these producers, how, how do they get incentivized to pursue that growth program so quickly off the back of this retrenchment story that's been forced on them in 2020? Gas producers are used to being the whipping boys of the industry. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, no, I think you're exactly right. We are taking a lot of associated gas out of the system. And, and you, you, you alluded to it. You know, we don't, we were, looking at a declining gas supply already this this year we're going to go from like 94 down to 84 bcf a day uh just this year because we just don't need the gas and you know when you had when the expectation was associated gas is going to grow well gee uh mr producer in the haynesville and private equity shop running some rigs or uh you know in the in the haynesville and sorry the, the large producer in the in the marcellus no, you guys just wait your turn, wait your turn, wait your turn. Well, now you're right. It has just been a complete flip. The price signal will be there. It, and our price signal goes from like 290 up to north of 350 between fourth quarter this year and first quarter next year. I'm not sure that operators are going to be able to respond on a, you know, pivot on a dime uh, at, that, at that point because they're, they are going to need cash flow to put rigs back in the field. So there may be a little bit of lag between the price signal and the response in the field. But I think next year is poised to be a really good year if you're a gas operator. Uh, I think that it's going to be the best year they've had in maybe a decade, uh, which is a shame because because gas is only going to 350. But uh, I've been doing this long enough to remember that when it, when it was down near, near less than a dollar. Um, so... So the guys that have managed to stick around are, are going to see a good yeah, year. They will. They will. Um, is it a good year or is it just the best year in a decade? <laughs> now we're splitting hairs, um, Hill. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you've, when you've been neck deep in water, uh, at least now you can get your arms out. Uh, so, so it's not going to be as bad. I think that there will be – it is setting itself up to be good. Um, and, and then you move into sort of the longer term of what happens with the LNG uh, and, and domestic demand uh, and how those play out. And there's much less transparency. There's pushback on pipelines out of Appalachia. We used to we had been thinking, golly, we're going to have so much excess pipeline because of associated gas taking market share. Well, now uh, with all that lack of associated, we're going to need to pull on Appalachia more. Um, but there are environmental pressures not to build pipelines. And so if that happens, gee, now we're going to have to have an even higher gas price uh, because we're going to have to go back to the Barnett or the Fayetteville or uh, some other place. So there's a lot of uncertainty, I think, in the gas markets, uh, not necessarily through end of next year, 
but moving into mid 22 and beyond sort of the things that the the things that set up that will really push price up or down at that point are going to play out over the next 12 months and and it it it's just so much uncertainty in that so if we're looking at all this i mean that the, there's continues to be a huge focus on North America, which has been, you know, soaking all the CapEx, you know, for upstream or, you know, that's an exaggeration, but a lot of CapEx for upstream over the past however many years led by the Permian. I mean, Kareem, if you're looking, you know, at global oil markets as a whole, I mean, where are some other regions that, that we want to be paying attention to and uh, call, call it the immediate term, if, if maybe we have gotten ahead of ourselves and if there is this kind of sleeper shut in it could hit the market you know much more quickly than a rig campaign begins yeah i mean on the international side if you look beyond the us i mean obviously the big shut-ins that we know of that we've kind of seen and heard of are in canada brazil norway so spread out around the world volumetrically speaking canada is fairly significant it's north of five hundred thousand barrels a day and the but nothing is really material on the same scale as the us shut-ins have been which is a million and a half two plus million barrels a day ultimately what it depends on how you define, and this is the trickiest part when you look international in the short term, is the, the, the tricky part is defining the cuts that were committed by countries within that OPEC plus framework and how enforceable that those cuts remain as the, the supply chain around the world starts to get some breathing room. As you start to have spare tankers in the global market, as you have the LCCs available, will Nigeria, will Angola, will some of these West African countries that are really re reliant on oil revenues and oil cash flows remain committed to those cuts that they committed to within the OPEC plus framework when there is a spare tanker available to come and take that cargo, even at a price of $35, $40 a barrel barrel or $30 a barrel. Uh, that, I think, is going to be the biggest test as you get into this third quarter for a lot of these NOCs, and especially countries which are very reliant still on oil revenues. That cash flow is existential for a lot of these political systems and economies, and that incentive to cheat in historical OPEC parlance is is very high, but even more so in these types of economic conditions with the COVID impact on, on the economy, et cetera. So I think in the short term, a lot of these companies will be trying to kind of squeeze any dollar they can get. And that's one of the key risks on top of that overheating of the rally we were talking about earlier in the short term is, as you move into this the summer and demand does recover, I think the, the opening up of that room in the supply chain and uh, creep up in prices will start to kind of create that incentive for supply to come back to the market even before we have time to work down the inventories, the massive inventories that we've built so far. Uh, in terms of medium and longer term capital, that's a much different question. And that's the segment. So obviously, CapEx has been migrating to the US for the past decade or so in terms of upstream overall, as you look at the world. And over the next three to five years, it's very hard to see where that capital is coming from and getting invested in the upstream space. Obviously, this year, in terms of sanctioning of new projects coming into the year, we were expecting something you know, north of 2 million barrels a day worth of projects, you know, nameplate capacity, uh, upstream projects getting sanctioned outside of the US and the Middle East. Our forecast now after the virus is probably, you know, 
negligible uh, or you know up to two three hundred thousand barrels a day so down more than 95 percent so you're you're st seeing that stalling of investment around the world and the companies are uh, under severe kind of uh, pressure economically and financially so that's going to be the, the first focus as we come out of this over the next few quarters is going to be repairing balance sheets and and recovering before focus goes back to growth again around the world. And that, in a way, is a similar as you were talking about gas. That, in a way, for us, is a bit of a constructive setup for oil. If you look down kind of over the horizon and towards the back half of 2021 and 2022, it does look a lot better because I think we think that this, this supply destruction that's being wrought now, separate from the shut-ins in the short term and the inventories, assuming that surplus and that overhang in the market gets digested, as you move out of this, this demand crisis and on the other side, the supply destruction that's been wrought here uh, is such that it creates significant room in the market uh, in the medium term uh, for prices to, to edge up, especially if the U.S. is less responsive and the threshold at which U.S. producers you know, move back into growth is higher than it was in 2017, as uh, as Reed was talking about. So, and please tell me if I uh, read between the lines incorrectly on this, but in the near term, the ceiling's a little sticky on price. I mean, it's pretty hard to go above a mm -hmm. certain level, but maybe in the medium term, actually, we could have some room for some bulls to run and and a, and a higher ceiling. No, that's exactly right. So I think you're you're read correctly there. In the short term, the problem is structurally is that you have record inventories on the sidelines, floating storage, onshore storage, and you have a massive amount of spare capacity around the world. Short-term shut-ins, you know, coordinated political shut-ins, economic logistical shut-ins. So you have a, an amount of supply on the sidelines that needs to come back into the market before you can start to see the front end of that curve significantly move higher. As un, Until that point, as supply moves higher, you're always susceptible to see that overshoot in terms of supply, renewed stock builds. And that fear, I think, is going to be very difficult to dissipate in the market until you get that both the demand certainty, so the vaccine or some demand certainty that you don't have a second wave down, down the pipe, and that you don't have that supply, you know, sitting on the sideline that's waiting for the opportunity to come back into the market. Until you clear those two major hurdles, I think it's difficult to see the front end of the curve move into that steep backwardation and higher momentum in terms of uh, in terms of the ceiling on prices. But if you as you clear those hurdles, I think it becomes a lot more it's easier to rally uh, above that threshold, the 50 plus dollars a barrel range. And that's where we see prices trending towards the back half of 2021 and into 2022. So when we look at the beginning of the year, I mean, but before COVID, you know, I think, that, I mean, I know, Reed, you and I were talking about, you know, this being a year with increased bankruptcies in North America and Kareem. I don't think that people, you know, that there was still a supply overhang, even if we hadn't shut down the world for two months, right? So, and, and there was an OPEC price war. You know, these COVID made a bad problem worse in terms of, I guess, oil markets. You know, when do those conversations, I guess the bankruptcy conversation never left us, but when does the OPEC price war conversation re-enter uh, re the discussion? 
Yeah, I mean, I think everything is put on hold. You had that strategic divergence within OPEC. Obviously, OPEC and its partners, in Ru and particularly Russia, were stuck in a in a really untenable management exercise. What started as a tactical six-month cut ended up being a four-year effort with repeated cuts and you know relapsing, remitting surpluses and constant kind of uh, thinking through how to manage this market. I think coming into this year, they were stuck in that game and that strategic divergence between Russia and Saudi Arabia on what price level is required to to both keep the U.S. at bay in terms of uh, in terms of production and get the prices their economies need was was a very big kind of point of friction between both countries that faded a bit through this crisis because of the because of the urgency and because of the focus really first and foremost on short term survival and the, and the price environment. But I think as you come out on the other side of this and towards the latter half of this year. And as you go into 2021, those strategic conversations will have to come back uh, and be addressed. And what price Saudi Arabia wants wants for oil, and how they think about the oil market in the medium in the in the medium term and in the next few years, I think that's going to become a conversation again. Uh, but at the moment, the focus is still very much on on getting through the next few weeks and months. Uh, and, and shielding that price floor as high as possible, even if it is still well below what their economy and the economies of their kind of Gulf partners and OPEC members uh, require. I think it's such an interesting time right now because through all these conversations, it would, I would venture to say unprecedented in the sense that we can talk about the short term and there's all this risk around the short term on both the demand and supply side and, and price risk that comes along with that. But as we look to the impacts of this crisis, I mean, they're going to be far reaching. We're talking about potential long term changes in in demand behavior. And as we talked about changes in producer behavior or supply behavior. So needless to say, um, I, I'm going to guess we're going to have you both back on this podcast <laughs> on several occasions yeah. because um, we could talk for hours. And and there is going, I think that the, it, obviously it's been a pivotal time period in the world as a whole, but specifically within energy markets and within the connection between energy markets and financial markets, I think that this let's say five to six month period is probably going to go down as one of the biggest transition points. And uh, we really appreciate you guys chiming in on that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And, but I guess before we, before we sign off, Reed cream, I mean, looking at this and going back again to the idea at the beginning of, uh, of this year and for the past couple of years that the North America shale co sector shale companies have been uninvestable uh, by, by many, uh, by, by many views. Does this, does does they call it the prudence that, that we've seen you know over the past couple of weeks? Um, can can this sector emerge as investment worthy? Um, it, are these behaviors short term, or, or, or do we see things uh, you know coming back to, to quote unquote normal? In the North American industry, I think there are structural changes. Um, the question is why, uh, and there are two answers. One is um, because we're just going to see companies go away. I guess there are three answers. One, we'll just see companies go away. Um, and then I think the companies that are left will fall largely within two categories, uh, majors and large U.S. companies that behave like majors. We did a look a few years ago um, of how many operators were in the Permian 
and how many operators were there in deep water. And there were like a, over a thousand Permian operators and seven deep water operators. And so what we saw is there's just been a culling of companies in the U.S. over the last five, six years um, as they get acquired, as they just can't, they, they just go out of business. And so what we're going to see is the companies that can weather the storm are going to start behaving much more like their competitors, which we saw come in the last couple of years being the majors. We're seeing the majors make a larger position in the United States unconventional uh, system. And so an investor is going to say, I could buy a stock that, uh, that gives me a good return, or I could buy a growth stock uh, that gets crushed every time price goes down. Uh, that's, you know, the leverage on it is just so much higher. And, and they're going to they continue to vote with their dollars, uh, largely because of what Saudi has done. So I think that what we're going to see is this is a structural change. When we talk to CEOs, it is a structural change to investing to, to change the investment thesis uh, that or the investment proposition that these companies give to give to their buyers of look we've we've stressed test our portfolio at thirty dollars we plan on fifty we stress it at thirty and we give a lot of cash back uh, that's what an investor wants and so that's why our longer term outlook is very muted compared to where we were even just six months ago yeah, I mean, uh, just to, 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 to take it back in terms of the global oil market and the problem always has been over the past several years, if you think back, I mean, the reason why people looked at this, I mean, the shale sector specifically, but oil and gas as a whole as a share of the S&P has been declining for the past decade at a, at a pretty fast clip. So as you think about it as a, as a segment, as an investable segment, the problem has been is really the disruption that the U.S. has brought has, as the U.S. shale has brought onto the sector has meant that you're, you were always in an untenable situation in terms of supply demand dynamics and the fundamentals would co constantly overwhelm any investment made by these companies and ultimately uh, take a toll on, uh, on, on financials. What's been happening here, what's interesting is we've talked to a lot of clients for the past several years. And if I think back to the number one question since 2017 or scenario that you know clients have tried to run past us, it's always been some variant of why doesn't Saudi Arabia just flood the market for another quarter, force the shale guys to rethink their business model once and for all and start with a clean slate, hit the reset button and set us on a more sustainable and investable trajectory. The reason why that's always been the our response to that historically has been and which has been kind of validated by Saudi Arabia's efforts and OPEC's efforts for the past several years through repeated cuts has been it's really difficult and unpalatable at price environment from an economic and political standpoint for a lot of these countries and these producers. What's happening now is whether they want to or not, what the COVID crisis has done is that it has created this price environment and they're really, you know, even unwilling passengers for this supply shakeout that they sought to avoid over the past three years. And as that shakeout takes its takes its toll on the U.S. Uh, as, a, as a system and on global investment, I think it does achieve some sort of uh, shakeout in terms of global supply as you look over the horizon that does start to appear for the first time i would say since you know since us this us shale revolution really began the sector starts to look a lot more uh, attractive now the problem is and this is where you go you could go you know either side on this argument is the demand the demand story in the medium to long term 
is looking more tenuous. The peak demand narrative is getting stronger. So the problem is that interplay between the supply side of the equation looks more constructive than it did coming into this year as you look over the horizon. But the question is, will some of the structural changes on demand accelerate that demand peak and offset a lot of that benefit? I think we'll find out over the next couple of quarters and years as we come out of this. But uh, that's going to be one of the key themes going forward. All right. Sounds like a theme that we can address in a, another podcast. Sure. What's the hell of a segue, Karina? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well thanks, everybody. Uh, uh, Brian, I think we can call that a wrap. Uh, I think so. So we will uh, we'll, we'll sign off and uh, we'll, we'll have you back again once we go viral. As you guys help us. Thanks to you both, Kareem and Reed. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Brianna. Good talk. Bye, guys. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.